0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz with the asterisk. And that is, I know most of you may be at your homes. You are maybe quarantining. Who knows? But we know the whole nation has a lot of time on their hands to be listening to solid quality, important, factual information. And so my guest today is absolutely the person to do that. And I'll just start by saying that I look at him as a leader, and a leader can be defined as a person who commands a country, the military, a state, a city, a neighborhood, or, you know, even a single family. They always stay calm. They keep the best interests of the people they help in mind, and they lead them into and through some of the toughest battles. I look at them as bravery machines. So this week's Everyone Talks to Liz podcast guest to me is the epitome of a leader and his character— And undying work earned him the title of Admiral in the United States Navy. He was also Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and Commander of both the United States European and Southern Commands. I'd like to welcome Admiral James Stavridis, who also, of course, is the author of the new book, Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyages of Character, which I read over the past week, Admiral. And I have to tell you, so much of the leadership qualities that you outline with these 10 admirals would be very much appreciated today. And speaking of today, tell me, if, if if there were a war, I know I would feel comforted knowing you're in charge, but there is a war right now. It's a global one to slay the hidden enemy of the coronavirus. Tell us what you think our leaders are doing right, but also what you feel they have done wrong.
1: Liz, wonderful to be with you, and to all those who are listening in a quarantine status. In particular, Mm. be brave of heart. We will come through this. Let's um, let's pull two characters out of the book, Liz, if I can, because both of them, in *Sailing True North*, um, epitomize what we need at this time. The first one you probably know. I'm going to say this is Admiral Chester Nimitz Mm. becomes the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet as World War II unfolds, he takes command two weeks after Pearl Harbor, another black swan event that we did not see coming. And so what does he do? He is uh, uh, in his uh, early 50s at this point. He's waited a lifetime to become the commander of this fleet. And yet the fleet is ruined and a smoking hulk in front of him in Pearl Harbor. So instead of taking command, In his beautiful service dress whites on the deck of a gorgeous battleship, he ends up taking command in a rumpled set of khakis on the deck of a tiny diesel submarine. But here's what he does that is apropos of the moment. He recognizes the crisis in front of him. He's very clear-eyed and realistic about it. He builds a team. He delegates. He finds the greatest naval Marine Corps And indeed, Army and Air Force minds in our military, he brings them together. People as disparate as Admiral Bull Halsey, very volcanic, Uh, General Douglas MacArthur, very challenging always with his own ego. He brings a team together. So delegation. And number three, Liz, he never raises his voice. He never loses his temper. He is calm. And steady because he knows everyone is watching him. So I'd say we need leaders like Nimitz at every level, uh, from our president to our governors, to our mayors, to, as you mentioned, within our families. We need leaders who are clear eyed about the challenges, who are going to build teams and delegate, and three, who... Are not gonna lose their temper, are not gonna get emotionally carried away with the moment. So I'm gonna start with leadership like Chester Nimitz. That's what we need. The second person is another Admiral, a wonderful admiral, perhaps my favorite personality of the ten in Sailing True North, and her name is Admiral Grace Hopper. Oh sure. She's a tiny little woman, you know, five feet a hundred and three pounds. Pearl Harbor happens and she's not ready to take command of the Pacific fleet, but she's smart as hell. She has a Ph.D. in applied mathematics. Um, she's a professor at Columbia. She goes down to a Navy recruiting office and says, I want to join the Navy. And they tell her, you don't weigh enough to join the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have. She goes off and eats milkshakes and steak and comes back. She makes the weight limit. And she goes on to bring the Navy into the computer age. She's the mother of COBOL, the computer programming language. She programs the first computer. She's an extraordinary person. But here's what I like about her, and I'll close with this, her sense of humor. Smart as hell, saw around every corner there ever was, but she kept her sense of humor. And that's what I would add to the prescription that we mentioned a moment ago for Nimitz. In all of this, we have to see through the bleakest of this, that we will go forward and we need to maintain that good sense of humor and the kindness
0: that goes with it. Kindness is absolutely important. It's almost an ingredient in what we hope will be a recipe that is very healthy for this nation at the moment. I I think you're right. Anybody can lead when the sun is shining. But you also say it's what they do when the options are very rough seas and morally ambiguous Um, Right now, as we fight this coronavirus, we're looking to our leaders. Who, from what you've seen out there, whether it's certain governors or mayors, I have a great mayor in Edgewater, New Jersey. You know, Bergen County is a hot zone. It's the hot zone of the state of New Jersey. He used to be an oil trader at the NYMEX. This guy's got some serious testosterone mojo running through his veins, and he has taken the city and is handling it at every level. Um, I, I'm thinking because this is our area, the tri-state area. Governor Cuomo, you know, who do you think's doing the right things? Tell me.
1: Um, well, first of all, I'm. Uh, let's leave the politics completely aside. Always, I could, as, as you know. I'm a registered independent. I'm a centrist. I was vetted for vice president by Hillary Clinton. I was offered a cabinet post by Donald Trump. I kind of think of that as two bullets whizzing by my head. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you, I'm looking at pure leadership qualities. I like what Governor Cuomo is doing. He appears by himself. He clearly is in command of the moment. He is very straight shooting. He's reaching both up, to the national level, to the president, who I think is working well with Governor Cuomo. And I think Governor Cuomo is reaching down to those wonderful local authorities, those mayors, that range from tiny little towns in western New York to dealing with Bill de Blasio. I mean, talk about a range of personalities he has to deal with. And egos. (laughs) And egos, indeed. And I think he's doing a pretty good job with that. Another national figure who we've all come to know and I admire deeply now is uh, Dr. Fauci, who's this uh, tiny little ball of mojo I don't know how much you know about his background, but he comes from a very blue collar background in New York. He's on a construction crew that literally builds Cornell Medical School and then ends up graduating at the top of his class from Cornell Medical School. Mm. Talk about a straight shooter who's got, I think, that right balance of optimism, but also tells it like it is. Those are two people that I think are both doing a very good job right now, among many others around of course, the course.
0: Of course, some very nameless hospital workers who are staying calm, staying away from their own families so that they can treat complete strangers.
1: Um, one of my son-in-laws is a physician, and he is uh, working at an emergency room in Atlanta. He comes home exhausted every night, uh, stumbles into the shower. My daughter and their little one-year-old Um, have to stay away from him because he's constantly exposed to COVID-19. He's a real hero. And let me tell you his name. His name is Jimmy Wong. He's Chinese American and still has relatives in China. Um, He's first generation born here, brilliant guy, went to Penn, went to medical school in New York. Um, There are countless stories of those heroic physicians uh, who are going to
0: Get us through this. God bless him and them, please, um, Admiral. I wanna, I wanna talk about the the genetics or or at least the DNA of panic. My dad was a surgeon. My dad would be called into the emergency room, and he said, "Liz, they would say gunshot wound victim," and they'd roll people in. Their entire chest had been exploded by a gunshot. And his medical school teacher, Harry Newman, Dr. Harry Newman, RIP, he uh, he worked and, and was the star urologist at um, uh, Albert Einstein in the Bronx, had said, just start cauterizing, meaning Look at the wound. Don't get overwhelmed by the big picture. Start looking at the details. Let me tackle this. I see an artery here that's bleeding. This is bigger. Let me cauterize and seal off this one. Okay, what about this one? If you look at the big picture, you will begin to panic. And what my dad said to all of us, we had five kids growing up in L.A., panic is contagious. Don't do it. In fact, he said there have been studies where if you're in an elevator and there are 10 people and the elevator stops everyone's calm. If one person starts to panic, it becomes contagious. Don't panic. Themistocles, who is one of the admirals that you, I don't even think the term admiral was existing back uh, back in 490 BC, 480 BC, but he's your first chapter. If you talk about panic, the Greeks were outnumbered five to one when it came to warships and the Persians had these triple bank of oars in their ships, and they were way bigger. But he destroyed the Persians simply by just using tricks and his brain and also imagining to somehow make his people, who were probably very terrified, brave. How do you instill bravery in people who are very scared?
1: Well, first of all, your point is spot on, and I've seen it again and again in combat situations. Um, We emphasize over and over and over in our military training that you have to depend on the others on your team who are with you. Mm And is absolutely contagious. Um, The ancient Greeks used to say that uh, the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is love. It's love for the men and women who are with you in that difficult situation. So number one prescription, think about others and maintain that calmness of mind. And that's something that uh, the ancient Greeks did very well. And it continues to this day in much of our philosophy and thinking, both in the military and the world of business and in other worlds. And secondly, love your first point. Get people to focus on the details. What can I fix right now mm. that's here in front of me? And in the example you cite, Themistocles did exactly that by focusing his sailors and his seagoing warriors on their armor, on their swords, on their rowing. Um, so it's that mix of high level, philosophical, uh, broad Love of others, why we sacrifice, why we take on these challenges, and focusing people on details and what they can fix that's right in front of them. You have to be able to do both as a leader in
0: crisis. Well, going back to Admiral Nimitz, you said he didn't even have much of the Navy had been destroyed in Pearl Harbor, and the next couple of days he's taken control. So he surrounded himself with these people. But isn't it difficult, even for the best of leaders, when the sun goes down and night falls and you're watching people die, which is exactly what we're seeing right now, how do they summon from deep within some type of mineral, some type of super zinc or who knows what, to give them bravery, courage, and the ability to lead?
1: Now you come on to one of the central points in the book, Liz, which is the difference between leadership and character. Leadership is, think of it as a big door that swings out in the world and it influences other people. And a leadership uh, door can swing like FDR in World War II and bring us through the Great Depression and the Second World War. But Uh, that big door of leadership can swing for ill as well. Someone like Pol Pot in Cambodia technically was a great leader, but his leadership had terrible ends to it. That big door of leadership, Liz, swings on a tiny hinge of character. Mm. That's the human heart. and It is in moments like Nimitz faced, moments like uh, the Mysticles face, moments like Lord Nelson faced at the Battle of Trafalgar. All of these moments are where you need character if you are going to overcome the challenges that we all face. So I think that difference between leadership and character is just crucial. And at times like this in dealing with coronavirus, we're going to find out Not only who our best leaders are, but who among them have the character to get us through
0: moments like this. And isn't it important that leaders need to care way more about character than reputation?
1: Absolutely. And at the end of the day, uh, when your life is finished, you have kind of a choice in how you have focused your life and a way to think about it that the uh, terrific writer David Brooks wrote about in his book, uh, The Road to Character. Think about it as what are people going to say at your eulogy? Are they going to talk about your resume? You know, he was the admiral. He was supreme allied commander. He is a Ph.D. from the Fletcher School. He was the dean of the Fletcher. Or are they going to talk about he was a wonderful father? He was a loving son. He was a terrific brother. He was someone who raised his children in the best way. I think that it's not about your resume. It's about your character when all said and done. And leaders who recognize that are the kind of leaders we need and want.
0: Yeah, and uh, resume also includes uh, approval ratings. We need to drop the polls on everything that is unimportant right now. Um, I, I think that I'm, I'm just getting frustrated when I, I hear some politicians, let's say it, President Trump and some of the others, who stop in the middle of this crisis to talk about those kinds of things. I think we all need to make it very clear that uh, we don't, that's not what we need. We need that leadership. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. To that end, and you talked about Dr. Fauci of the NIH, but the CDC seemed initially very ill-prepared. You know, the World War II fleet, Admiral Ernest King once remarked, the sign of a great ship handler is never getting into a situation that requires great ship handling. Uh, Why are we not learning from previous situations, previous outbreaks, and stocking up for just this type of emergency
1: there will come a time for a big investigation into exactly that question i think it'll be at the level of the 911 commission
0: uh-huh. because
1: at the end of the day almost no matter how this plays out we're going to lose several hundred thousand americans in their 80s mostly some in their 70s some much younger and and we lost 3,000 people in 9-11, and we had a national commission really pulled apart what happened. I think we're going to need that. Now is not the time for that. Now is the time to solve what's right in front of us, what we were talking about a moment ago. Exactly. Details cauterize the veins that are bleeding. And the next thing we need to do in the future is to understand where we have failed thus far And be ready to go because there will be another pandemic. Every 100 to 200 years in human history, there's a significant pandemic. And despite all the improvements in medicine since the last one, we seem to be caught flat footed. I have been talking for about four years using Spanish influenza, which struck just over 100 years ago as a warning bell. And Now we see the need to have respirators, to have face masks, to have trained military units that can be activated. Where is the NATO alliance against pandemics? So we have lessons to be learned here. We need to get out of the political mindset, as you point out, and eventually we're gonna have to answer the question nationally, why have we failed and what can we do better next time?
0: Admiral, I have a technical question that just popped into my mind. Uh, you've been on many a ship, sailed every sea. Um, you know well of submarines, etc. How are they doing social distancing? What, I mean, have you ever seen an outbreak on a ship or an outbreak on a submarine? And are they trained? I, I know the answer to this. Of course, they're trained to deal with it. But how do they prevent it?
1: Yeah, let's, let's start with what it's like on a U.S. Navy ship, because I think a lot of people think that, you know, a Navy ship's probably kind of like a cruise liner. You know, there are nice staterooms for every one of those sailors, maybe one or two people in each of the staterooms. Some of them have balconies. Hey, it's not like that. Think about your kitchen at home, and 15 people live in the kitchen. They're on bunk beds in your kitchen at home. That's what a Navy ship is like. So there's, there's no way to establish uh, social distancing on a ship. So here's what you have to do. You have to look at each ship as a unit and uh, effectively test everybody, make sure everybody is clean on the ship, and then you effectively quarantine the ship. And so that ship will operate without people going on or off uh, throughout a pandemic type crisis. And yes, we are trained to do that. We're not quite at that point, Liz. We've seen a couple of Navy sailors on a couple of ships. And of course we have, Uh, about 300 ships in the U.S. Navy right now. So numbers are very low, but we are thinking that through and preparing for it because in addition to helping civilians in this crisis and the military will, we also have to maintain our national security. And of course, it's not just ships. We don't want a pandemic getting into our strategic nuclear forces, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have... Uh, first order concerns maintaining our security readiness, then being prepared to step out and help the general public. We'll do both. We are trained to do it. Uh, perhaps the toughest environment you've put your finger on it are those Navy ships because our folks are packed in there.
0: Yeah, I, I, I went and I went on that, um, the U-505 in Chicago. It was a a German submarine that had been captured and they brought it all the way to down, I guess, the St. Lawrence Seaway and you can take a tour of it. And I took five steps in there and had to run out. It was so claustrophobic. And that's why I thought about that. What must it be like for our brave naval soldiers and military and, and sailors to be dealing with this? Who was tough to not make the cut in your 10 admirals? I'm sure you had a whole bucket worth of real leaders. Who did it kill you not to include, but you just had to make some decisions?
1: Yeah. The number one admiral who was just below the cut line was an admiral named Arlie Burke. And Arlie Burke was, uh, chief of naval operations. He headed the Navy immediately after World War II. Throughout World War II, he was the chief of staff and then a commander of a a major naval force. And he is beloved in my part of the Navy, which is the destroyer fleet, these small greyhounds of the sea. He was the original destroyer officer. Um, And I love him. I met him personally many times before he passed a couple of decades ago. But the reason he didn't make it, Liz, was he's – as a personality type, he's almost exactly like Chester Nimitz. So you couldn't really take up another spot. The other one, uh, an admiral you've never heard of, but um, a very interesting character, is the – Russian Admiral, really the Soviet Admiral named Gorshkov, Admiral Gorshkov, who was the head of the Russian Navy for decades during, if you will, the hunt for Red October years. And I desperately wanted to include him. He's a very interesting character, his style of leadership filtered through the communist system. But I couldn't get access to primary source material. So as a a research challenge, we couldn't quite drag him into it. So those were two that I wanted to get in. And lastly, an admiral I, I really adore, who's almost a contemporary of mine, is uh, Admiral Michelle Howard, a woman. She's uh, African-American, first African-American woman to become a four-star admiral. She was um, the admiral who led the rescue of Captain Phillips. You remember that movie? Oh, sure. Right. She is the one-star admiral Uh, in command of that uh, flotilla of ships that rescues Captain Phillips. She went on to be a four-star. I only did not include Michelle because at the end of the day, I thought there was symmetry to having only admirals who have passed away, who have, uh, if you will, joined the great fleet in the sky. There'll be other books, and I may even have time to write about Michelle Howard at some other point. But there's three that uh, I really esteem that didn't quite make it in the top 10.
0: I know tough choices are made when you're trying to slim something down or keep it within the boundaries of what you have to. But I I wanted to give those just under the line people an opportunity, at least for you to describe them. You know, uh, broadening it to all wars and battles i think about the israelis and i think you know not a big uh, naval power back then when it was fighting for its survival although you could argue it was fighting for its survival every single day up until now still they were attacked as soon as they declared independence by surrounding nations with unbelievable firepower and yet they were able, and, and certainly during the Six-Day War, destroy the Egyptian Air Force because they just were so much uh, smarter and proactive. We can beat this coronavirus, can we not? What is your final word to our listeners?
1: We can and we will uh, defeat coronavirus. I guarantee it. And in a certain sense, we are lucky that... This virus is not as lethal as, say, the Spanish flu from 100 years ago. Not as lethal as avian flu from 1997, Liz, which had a 60% mortality rate. Um, So we are going to get through this one. I have no doubt about it. And in fact, I think, and this is your world, of course, with the great work you all do on Fox Business, you you know that... The risk here is medical to the elderly, but it's economic to the young. And we need to be very mindful of potential unemployment amongst youth, the economy slowing down significantly. We will get around the medical side of this. It's going to require great minds, economists, business leaders, commentators like you, Liz, who can help guide us through the economic side of this thing. We will do both of those here's my last thought. We need to use this as a wake-up call so that we don't get caught flat footed when the next pandemic turns out to have high transmission rate and high mortality. We don't have that combination right now. Thank God. So wake-up call and let's get through this. And my last thought is, this is not a time for politics. And I'm talking to you Whether you are someone who wakes up in the morning watching Morning Joe on MSNBC and goes to bed at night listening to Rachel Maddow, or you can't imagine a day where you don't tune in to Fox and Friends in the morning and listen to Sean Hannity at night, we have got to pull together across this political spectrum. And that is the most important message I can convey
0: today. Showing leadership as always, Admiral James DeVridis, a hero, a leader, and I'd like to say my personal friend. Thank you, Admiral.
1: And you are my personal friend as well. And this was a wonderful, wide-ranging conversation. It's so true. Everyone talks to Liz. Thanks a lot.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Admiral. The book is called Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character by Admiral James DeVridis. I know you guys have a lot of time. You're sitting at home. Get the book, Amazon's Still Delivering, and you can get it on a Kindle. You can download it anywhere, so make sure you read it. I breezed right through it, chapters about these fascinating people and how they managed under the most difficult of circumstances at great deficit when it came to how much firepower they had versus their enemy, how. They succeeded and won, and so much of it is about character. Uh, The Admiral had mentioned uh, his thanks to us uh, for informing the public. I just want you guys to know that as of right now, I am in it for you and will be. 3 p.m. Eastern, the the most important hour of trade. He talked about the economic issue and the financial markets issue. It has been very volatile, and the final hour of trade, 3 p.m. Eastern – I got my claws in it. I am breaking every headline that I see and I'm able to see. I am there for you. And then 6 p.m. Eastern, if you follow me on Twitter, at Liz Clayman, I've been doing Twitter live shows to let you know how the futures open. Futures are an indication of how the markets may trade the minute the opening bell happens. They begin trading at 6 p.m., what I do is I go on Twitter and do the Twitter Live, and I immediately get you those numbers and any headlines breaking around it, whether it's gold and the movement there, oil, etc. Oil hit a 17-year low yesterday, which was, of course, I know you, some of you are not listening, particularly on this particular day, but on the 18th of March. So coming back a little bit, but it's changing as we speak. It is a very treacherous trading atmosphere, and I'm here to give you all the tools you need. So thank you so much. I'll see you at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network. And our thanks to Admiral James DeVridis. I'll see you next time, guys.